Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum. And with us tonight, as always, the documentarian of nearly every stupid thing I say on the mic, Mr. Joseph Wren. Joe, how do you live with such an awful burden? And good evening to you, all of you gruesome people. Someone has to press record, someone has to capture the audio, and somebody has to make it listenable, as you frequently say. And I am comfortable assuming that role because... These are important topics that we talk about in the Fright Lab. We talk about horror movies. We talk about scary subjects. And this is, I don't know what you want to call this. This is your symposium of horror cinema verte, right? You know, and that's an interesting thing. Because if you had told me at some point, maybe in the last five years, hey, you're going to do this, I would have said, I guess I could get that bored. Sure, yeah, why not? Uh, But for my part, I'm actually really happy to finally get this idea off my chest because it's one that's been with me for a little too long. So in our previous episode, we discussed not only like the genesis of horror cinema verite style, we also discussed its first generation, the original OG found footage horror. If this is your first episode, welcome. We appreciate you tuning in. But you might want to go back and listen to that first episode of the series. Don't worry about us. We can pause the show and wait while you go listen to that. All right. uh, Welcome back. We're glad you decided to come back and listen to part two. For those of you who are just coming back, and for our stalwart listeners, let's head into the dark once more. There's a lot more ground to cover here. For those of us who are terminally meme-poisoned, you understand the implications of this statement. There are two wolves inside of you. The two wolves inside of me are pulling at my two great cinematic loves, horror and documentaries. I would even argue that documentary filmmaking is one of the most fascinating types of films, sometimes more fascinating than horror in many regards. Sure, there are a set of problems that come with sets and actors and all of that, but dealing with real life while wielding a camera is another animal altogether. And as we all understand, you know, truth is inevitably stranger than fiction. But rather like the way found footage feels like an inevitable growth in terms of horror, the horror mockumentary was destined to happen. But typically, when someone talks about mockumentary films, you're thinking about this is Spinal Tap, like we mentioned before, or the movie Zelig, and not the subject of our nightmares, you know, horror films. But this is the Fright Lab, meaning we're going to take a tour through that strange liminal territory where filmmakers decided that imaginary horror needs to look like real journalism. But before we dive into this subject, I want to quickly reiterate my theory about horror cinema verite and try to elaborate on the fuzzy lines between documentary and mockumentary. And I also know that it might sound kind of funny, the idea that the lines between real and fake in terms of documentary should be clear, But in the history of filmmaking and entertainment, the nature of truth-telling is not always so simple. To 
to reiterate, I just need to go off the cuff for a second and talk about what horror cinema verite is. As we said in the previous episode, there is a tendency in filmmaking to try to create films that look and feel more real. Things that don't have subtitles, things that don't have voiceovers, may or may not use music. That's typically referred to as cinema verite. I posit that there is a kind of secondary approach to film horror cinema verite that is trying to create horror in realistic situations that also look like they were recorded in a realistic situation. I also argue that like the first generation of that is found footage. Blair Witch, Paranormal Activity, uh, Noroi the Curse, things like that. Okay, cool, got it. So what about this mockumentary thing I'm talking about? Well, typically, when people talk about fakes in documentaries or hoaxes in terms of documentaries, the name that kind of pops up first and almost instantly is Nanook of the North, uh, directed by Robert J. Flaherty in 1922. Uh, the film follows an Inuit man identified as Nanook as well as his family. The movie depicts them engaged in like day-to-day -day life, such as going to a trading post or and hearing a gramophone for the first time. Uh, hunting walruses with harpoons, building igloos. Okay, fine, uh, but there's a problem. A massive chunk of the events of this film are fully staged. Let's start with Nanook himself. Well, that wasn't his real name. Uh, the woman depicted as his wife, not actually his wife. The harpoon he is forced to hunt with because he's an Inuit. Well, Inuit peoples had been in contact with traders for a long time before this movie was made, uh, and had been hunting with firearms for a long time. And the the famous scene where Nanook, surprised by the gramophone, uh, tries to bite into the record uh, out of confusion, uh, that was 100% fake. He was told to do that. He knew good well what a record was. So on one hand, Flaherty's representation of Inuit life is both unethical and pretty racist. Like it's it's hard to watch now with modern sensibilities. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with using reenactments in documentary films, so long as you say, this is a reenactment of the thing that happened, as long as it's announced. Agreed. But Nanook of the North helped us to create, in some regards, what we think of as documentary filmmaking. It might be a little bit of a hard watch now, but it is an important step in the process. You know, I, I think it's almost an origin point. Uh, even though if it kind of comes off inherently dishonest and just sort of funny. When we think of documentary film, it's come to have a sense of a director working hard to tell audiences the truth. And yet, the first documentary is full of a bunch of unannounced hoaxes. During the same year uh, that Nenek of the North was released, we also see the emergence of what's called Kino Pravda from Russia. The term Kino Pravda in Russia translates to film truth, and was used to describe a style of early newsreels created by Ziga Veritov, Elizaveta, uh, I'm sorry, Elizaveta Sevalova and Mikhail Kaufman. These films ended up being influential in Europe, especially in what would become the Soviet bloc. I've decided to include YouTube links for a good copy of Nanook of the North, as well as a playlist of Kina Pravda films in the, sh uh, in the show notes. By the way, the Kino Pravda films can be a little rough to watch, uh, as there really weren't any standards telling journalists what they could and could not film at the time. 
So while they are worth seeing uh, for historical value, they can be pretty uncomfortable in a couple spots. The first episode of that footage shows uh, images of starving families. Yeah, it, it's a rough sight. So tread lightly with those if you're interested in them. They are interesting from a historical perspective. So again, all of that's interesting for historical context, and it helps us get a small taste of documentary as a, as a historical thing. But that brings us back to our point about lines being fuzzy, right? Nanook is deeply fabricated, and the Kino Pravda have a few staged moments, but not in a way that like actually influences the information you're seeing. So? So what? Do we have examples of staged documentaries that happened like less than a century ago? Yeah, we do as a matter of fact. Joe, you're our music guy. I need you to reach deep into your background and knowledge when I ask you, have you ever heard of this fairly obscure British band called The Beatles? It's interesting you bring up The Beatles and refer to them as an obscure British band because <laughs> most people would reach back into themselves and say, I thought the Rolling Stones were the most important band of all time, and I would make a serious argument that you are wrong, because the Beatles have truly changed not just music, but they changed the pop music industry before leaving it, and then individually coming back to it. Um, I think that the film you're about to talk about is one of the most entertaining films of the time because it really just feels like a press release more of what we would call a digital press kit in today's world because was it a movie was it a fake documentary or was it an example of we want to have a movie about the beatles so somebody come up with a script and we'll just have them do it because this was post elvis right where the standard of what quality was was less about how good of actors they were and more about the fact that they were in a freaking movie right so uh the eagle-eyed amongst our audience has already picked out what we're talking about we're referring to 1964's a hard day's night uh, it follows the fab four around uh prior to a big performance since we're mentioning it here, it's worth knowing that whole chunks of the movie are entirely staged. And granted, the movie looks staged, at least to me, and I gotta say that there wasn't a competent actor amongst the entire band. I would argue that the acting is about as good as Ringo Starr's drumming, ultimately. Oh, now we're gonna fight. I, I'm sorry, I, I believe it or not, I actually have a pretty, pretty, uh, deep amount of respect for Ringo Starr for what he did. But let's be honest, the, the joke holds Ringo Starr wasn't even the best drummer in the Beatles. I'm sorry. I had to take that dig at you, man. I'm sorry. I, I couldn't help it. So anyway, uh, if you want to know more about the production of A Hard Day's Night, uh, there's plenty of it written out there. Five minutes on Google surrounding the Fab Four will help you, you know, understand that more. Uh, I feel like Joe is going to throw me out of his studio right about now. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the last episode of the Fight Lab. Uh, while Lucas may not survive the day, I can definitely tell you that uh, I'm just, I, I don't even know where to go with it I from know, here. I know, I know, you know I know. Okay, so, I can't even pretend that this is an argument we shouldn't be having on another podcast. Um, DiscussMetal.com. We have sweet perks. Uh, the Beatles are 
one of the biggest bands of all time, and I would argue the biggest band of all time because every time you turn the focus around and say, well, what about this? Well, what about this? You land on what is special about the Beatles, and that is they didn't do everything the best, but everything they did, they innovated. And that includes film because money-making, the machine of the music business. Maybe that's the case, Joe. Maybe that's the case. But we are not here to talk about the nuances of classic rock and roll. I'm trying to get off the beat, man. We're trying to turn on the blood spigot. Bring on the horror. That's what our audience was. Ladies and gentlemen, David Cronenberg. He's here finally. (laughs) Um, Thank you for appearing on the show, sir. Mr. Uh, Cronenberg, it's a real honor to have you in the studio. I'm kidding. So uh, tonight I want to talk about four movies that like carry the documentary side of the mockumentary debate really well. Uh, Three of these films, I would argue, are pretty brilliant. And one is kind of a mixed bag, albeit a mixed bag I ended up really enjoying. So let's go. Arguably my favorite horror mockumentary and the one that you should probably move to the top of your watch list is Lake Mungo from 2008, directed by Joel Anderson. Lake Mungo follows the Palmer family, who are reeling from the accidental death of of their secretive daughter, the 16-year-old Alice. The family is obviously pretty traumatized by their loss, and they all begin to act fairly strangely. Furthermore, they begin to experience a number of unusual events in their home. After reaching out to a local psychic, they learn exactly how secretive Alice Palmer could be. In less competent hands, Lake Mungo would be an absolute disaster. The plot is too simplistic, the, the, the feeling of it is too prosaic, and the roles of the Palmer family need to be played with such subtlety that in less competent hands, they fall completely apart. Uh, thankfully, though, Joel Anderson keeps the movie almost purely rooted in a documentary style, and it, it works. For those of us who grew up on documentaries of the 2000s, we know the visual and audio language or style from that era. Lake Mungo looks and moves like a normal documentary, you know? I obviously don't want to ruin the details of this film. Uh, Suffice it to say that Lake Mungo doesn't need like a bunch of special effects to really work. This movie is mostly missing the big overt scares that so many other horror cinema verite films fall back upon. Instead, Lake Mungo uses this relentlessly earnest atmosphere throughout the entire film. Its quote-unquote realness makes it feel real. Okay, but maybe you aren't in the mood for a relentlessly gloomy and ultimately sad family story, sparing, you know pepper in creepiness, right? Lucas, this is a mockumentary thing we're talking about. I want to be scared. I want to be entertained. This isn't reality. Okay. So for fans of Carl Sagan out there, I need to recommend 2013's Europa Report. Sci-fi horror is a style I don't really pay a lot of attention to, uh, uh, Event Horizon notwithstanding. And Europa Report nails this really decidedly modern feeling really well. Uh, We live currently in an interesting time period for space exploration, and Europa Report makes me feel like maybe we need to stay on this blighted little terra firma we've got here. Why? Well, Europa Report follows a team of astronauts to Europa, one of Jupiter's moons. Naturally, things go awry, as they often do in horror films, while in deep space, 
and our team manages to fire off one last communication to Earth, including video of their entire trip and the ultimate conclusion of their journey. The film is presented in this hyper-modern way, with the commentary of scientists intercut with video observation footage of the team. Every failing, every catastrophe, every heartbreak they suffer, you get to endure it with them. But this movie uses film in a very easy way, right? Europa Report is stated to be edited together into a coherent form from raw data. You are seeing clips and excerpts taken from workstation cameras and observation systems on board a ship. So, where's the horror, you might be asking yourself. I wasn't kidding when I said that this movie made me feel very strongly about remaining on Earth. This movie keeps to the sharp hold on the science side of sci-fi. Now, I am no astrophysicist, as you may have guessed, but this movie feels very real to me. Like, like Mongo, Europa Report feels shockingly real. And unlike Like Mongo, Europa Report does rely pretty strongly on practical effects and some digital visual effects. But they're filmed in such a way that it feels almost seamless. I would never compare this movie, or most movies, quite frankly, to Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. But I will say that it's the first spacey sci-fi horror flick that made me sit afterwards and wonder how it was done since I'd seen Kubrick's 2001 for the first time. It feels real. And that's hard to do when you're talking about sci-fi horror. That's hard to do when you're talking about space horror or space filmmaking. How Kubrick made 2001, I never really thought about it until I watched a documentary about the effects and it became more of an exciting film to watch for me. Yeah. And you're right. When you talk about sci-fi horror and even documentary or mockumentary uh, sci-fi horror, you're taking it a different direction because now you're sneaking in that concept we talked about on the last episode, that found footage thing, where even though I, I generally dislike it because it was overused for a time, if you do it correctly, it can add to the effect and that can be the most important step how do you convey to the audience that this is actually happening well and you know 2001 is such a classic example right i think i saw that for the first time in 1998 or 99 because i was a junior or a senior in high school first time i watched that uh really blew my mind as a movie because it, it is i mean me telling you that Kubrick made a good movie when he made 2001 is kind of a no shit statement. But <laughs> I mean, come on, realistically, we all know how good Kubrick was. But it's one of those things where that movie is really eye opening. And a lot of the space sequences, I know how to suspend my disbelief when I'm watching a movie. But there is just this chunk of it that you go, wow, that looks like. I really imagine outer space to be. Again, I am not an astrophysicist. I will uh, defer to astrophysicists in this subject. I don't know that there are any astrophysicists listening to the show, but you understand what I mean. Anyway, um, when I see a movie like that, though, it just it feels very real. And Europa Report does a good job of that, making you just sit and wonder, God damn, how did they pull that off? You know, and also the acting in it is really good. There's no like big names in the cast that immediately like. If you see Lawrence Fishburne, look, I I love Lawrence Fishburne in a movie as much as the next guy, but you see him on screen and he's a known quantity or Keanu Reeves or someone like that. 
the cast all is almost believable as a uh, international group of space travelers. You know, it's a it's a wholly believable conceit, if nothing else. So now we need to shift gears a little bit and talk about 2021's Horror in the High Desert. This is one of those classic like late night discoveries. You know what I mean. It's it's Saturday night. You're only like partially awake and you want to watch something that doesn't require you to think too much. Happy accident discoveries like that are great, even though they have you staying up much later than you'd planned. Maybe horror in the high desert is something of a neat rabbit hole in terms of conception and production, right? Uh, to start, this movie was filmed during the height of the early coronavirus pandemic. At, at that point, there was no talk of vaccines or anything. So at no point during the film does any actor appear on screen in the same room with another actor. Uh, furthermore, the story strongly resembles what's known as the Kenny Veach case or the M. Cave case. Uh, I'm not an expert on the subject, and I, I don't really get that much into like true crime and disappearances, but the plot of horror in the high desert closely mimics the Kenny Veach story. A hiker who has been uploading videos of his his adventures uh, out in the world onto the internet goes missing. His friends and family start looking for him. And as the story unfolds, we learn not only what happens to our protagonist, we also see the effects this disappearance has on other people in his life. Uh, I'm going to throw a couple of links to the Kenny Veach case into the show notes uh, if you want to read about it. It's pretty interesting. Uh, this is the movie that I referred to in the beginning of our episode as The Mixed Bag. Uh, Horror in the High Desert is not a perfect film. Some of the acting is a little unbelievable and kind of mixed, uh, but it is beautifully shot. It is genuinely a gorgeous film in a couple of sequences. There are some time-lapse videos and drone footage that gets used in it that is just it's just gorgeous. Uh, I couldn't find a clear listing on the budget for this movie, but I will say whatever it was, it was used correctly for most of the cinematography, if nothing else. It's a little light on the scares, like it, it uses some good atmosphere to build, and it does unfortunately rely on night vision, found footage, shaky cam moments, which uh, Joe hates. And I've Fuck got, shaky cam. Yeah, and it, even I was like, oh, come on, you've done a good job up to this. You don't need this last sequence. But the movie overall is not so badly done that it takes away from the rest of it. Uh, I'm going to share a link to the movie, actually. I found it on Tubi for free, so you guys can go watch it. Uh, and I do think this movie needs more attention. But I want to uh, talk for a second about what Joe just said, that the shaky cam thing needs to go. It's one of the things about that movie that is so incredibly disappointing, is that the the action is built so admirably, and the, the tension is held, and it's it's kind of relentless in its its grim honesty in throughout the film but the the sequence that where they finally do the uh green light light amplification night vision shaky cam thing it almost feels like a letdown and it's another one of those cases where it's an indie flick with a rut with seemingly a pretty small budget so it feels kind of like, oh, come on, guys, you didn't have to go here. But I kind of wonder if on some level, like that's an audience expectation to a degree. Like, I don't know that the movie could have gotten away without it on some level. I don't think the audience has a strong opinion about shaky cam that it needs to stay because nobody I've ever talked to about it thinks that it makes the movie more interesting. It's a great concept, right? I think the first time I was forced to be aware that shaky cam was a new trend was <laughs> Quantum of Solace. They okay. used it a lot in that James Bond film. And I hated it. 
because the film otherwise was framed and shot very clearly. But then anytime there was a slight action beat, they immediately cut to the shaky cam. And I asked somebody who makes films for a living, why is this a thing? Well, it's to make it seem more real to the audience, like they're really there. And in my own way, as I often do, I said, that doesn't make any sense. Who are you appealing to? Are you appealing to the military person or the ex-military person who's been in a tense situation? Are you appealing to the gamer who's played first-person shooters for a long time and is really used to whipping back and forth and being fully aware of their environment around them? Or are you appealing to the fan of documentaries or fake documentaries like The Blair Witch Project? And I never got a clear answer. The best answer I received was, it's cheaper. Okay, so that brings me to another question. There's this conversation around documentary films that I kind of never get tired of having, so uh, humor me for a minute here. Um, when handled sincerely, I think documentary films are supposed to be like a more or less truth-telling situation. But there's a problem here, right? I'm not convinced that sincere documentaries, even when every step is taken, can genuinely dole out all of the facts, right? Uh, more importantly, documentaries are a medium, therefore they are mediated. That is to say, even if you are like seeing movies that aren't deceptively edited or deceptively manipulated in some way, the footage has to be edited and manipulated somewhat to make a movie. On top of that, the camera's lens serves to add a layer of abstraction or distance from the subject of the documentary. You know, I don't think most documentary filmmakers are actively trying to deceive their audience, but they do have a goal and a message that they're aiming at, right? You know, should we trust documentary filmmakers? Well, should we trust directors at all? Uh, even if you take away the like seeming frequency of Hollywood scandals and abuses, most conventional directors aren't trying to make movies about the facts, so maybe we shouldn't count on documentarians for giving us straight facts either. I, I don't know. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Where I was first told this idea, I cannot remember, but I think it was around the time Bowling for Columbine first came out. Mm -hmm. And looking into who Michael Moore was and trying to understand his documentarian prowess. Yeah. I want to call it that because I was not aware of Roger and me. Yeah. But I quickly was made aware of the fact that it was supposed to be one of the best documentaries ever made. What I couldn't get past was some of the ideas that he shared in Bowling for Columbine seemed to be less driven by facts and more driven by his opinion. And that's when I was educated that documentaries are not about giving you facts as much as they're about giving you the director's opinion. It's down to the director to decide what type of documentary they want to give you. Do they want to give you all of the facts and then share their opinion on that? Do they truly want to give you the facts? Because if they do, that's journalism. That's not documentary. You know, that's an interesting question, too. Um, something I, 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 I like the point you're making. I think you're kind of onto something here with that is when I think about... Um, documentaries, I do have a, a sort of journalistic uh, a sense of them because I think a good many documentaries are journalistic in nature or in approach. 
there were, you know, it's interesting in the last, you know, we've been joking about David Cronenberg uh, over the last couple of episodes. Uh, there was actually a documentary I watched many years ago. And I don't quote me on this. I want to say it was on HBO. Uh, it was uh, Tales from the Organ Trade, I think was the name of it. And it was uh, narrated by David Cronenberg. So you have a sense of like, oh, that's got to be unsettling. And it kind of is. And it's about people who are involved in the buying and selling of organs for organ transplant. Uh, it's not as sinister as it sounds, quite frankly. But it is a really weird, interesting, neat documentary. Um, but it's fairly straightforward. You know, the the director seems to leave out a lot of uh, their political feelings, whatever they are. I mean, keeping in mind, I haven't watched this movie in about nine or ten years. I don't remember all of the details of it. But there is a layer of it that is uh, removed from that. There's not a lot of commentary on is this ethical? Is this unethical? Sure, they talk about it a little bit, but they're just trying to show you as many angles of it as you can. So I think done like that, there's a very thin line, if there's a line at all, between journalism and documentary filmmaking. But I also think, and uh, judging by some things I'm seeing you pull up on uh, the second screen, there's some interesting documentary points that have to be brought up about should we trust the documentarian. Joe, I feel like you have a thing you want to say. Please let this one out, man. This is the best example I have. I was talking about the director's perspective. And is a documentary about their opinion or is it about the facts? Best example, supersize me versus fat head. This is not horror unless you consider consumption of fast food to be a horrifying experience and many people do <laughs> for many of the reasons that are discussed in the film Supersize Me. But one person took a look at that and said none of this makes sense. You're eating it three times a day. You're talking about all these negative health effects and yes, you're going to be taking in a lot of calories, but you're completely missing the point about personal choice and responsibility. You're taking the perspective that Fast food is bad for people because they don't have a choice. And I am an intelligent adult human person who can just say no if I choose to. So there's some psychological things I think that aren't discussed in the latter film. But this is an example of the left side really is presented like a documentary. And the right side is challenging all of the things that are in that documentary. To clarify a point Joe just made is that he has a screen up in the studio. On the left side of it, he has the IMDb for Supersize Me, and on the right side of the screen, he has the IMDb for Fathead. And it's, you know, not... I don't want to get into the politics of, like, food deserts and how in many areas your options are fast food or bad, cheap, processed food. That's not the place for the Fright Lab. There are way better sources to have that conversation and talk about uh, the way resources are used, especially as it relates to nutrition in the United States. But I always had a problem with Supersize Me because there was just stuff where it's... I, if, and I, again, I haven't seen this movie since 2006, 2007, where he's like, oh yeah, well, I live... You know, My wife or girlfriend or fiance is like a vegetarian chef and I am in great physical shape. I work out, you know, Six times a week. He makes a lot of points where you go, well, yeah, man, no wonder you got sick eating McDonald's for 30 days. It's a total 180 of your lifestyle change. Of course you got sick, naturally. And there's a couple of scenes where he's like at his doctor and his doctor is gravely concerned about his health. And it's like, yeah, well, no shit, man. You've done nothing but eat 
burgers and fries for the last 30 days. Anyone's going to have health problems pop up from that. I think there is a valuable discussion to be had about, hey, maybe the food in this country isn't quite as good as it could be. Sure, absolutely a discussion, uh, and I'm being facetious there, but there is no re- very serious conversation to be had there. The difference is I don't think Morgan Spurlock, the director of Supersize Me, was quite an ethical actor in his portrayal of that, and that perfectly encapsulates this notion of should we trust the person presenting the media? Check out Fathead. It's on Prime. It'll answer your question. Should you trust the director? No. You should challenge him. So, with that in mind, I promised you we would talk about one more film, and I've intentionally saved this one for last, uh, specifically because I think it moves outside of our debate about media and mediation and in such a way that it could only come from one person. And that person is the closest thing to a celebrity I think I could be star-stricken by. Werner Herzog. That's right. Fans, friends, people of the Fright Lab, it's time to start talking about the 2004 bonkers mockumentary, Incident at Loch Ness. Most people incorrectly assume that Incident at Loch Ness was directed by Herzog himself, but it wasn't. Uh, The movie stars Werner Herzog, and it was directed by Zach Penn. Uh, Penn directed Incident at Loch Ness, and he also stars in the film as himself, sort of, but we'll get there to him in a moment. It's pretty obvious to me that Herzog had a massive impact and influence on the writing and direction of the movie. And rather understandably, I don't think you could be in a film with Werner Herzog about Werner Herzog that doesn't end up kind of looking a little bit like a Werner Herzog movie. Uh, So let's talk plot really quickly. Werner Herzog has joined up with Hollywood writer and producer Zach Penn to create a bigger budget iteration of Herzog's famous documentary film styles. But in short order, it becomes obvious that Zach Penn is just kind of sleazy and has every intent of fabricating details for this film. And initially, Herzog is not aware, though he quickly picks up on the fact. And just at the moment when it looks like Penn and Herzog are going to strangle each other, you learn that, well, maybe Loch Ness does have a few secrets to reveal after all. Undoubtedly, the Loch Ness Monster exists as myth, and as an amalgam of myth. I've always been interested in the difference between fact and truth, and I would call it the ecstatic truth. Millions of people are believing that in these deep waters, some sort of a dinosaur is dwelling. Professor Carmel, do you really believe in the monster? Absolutely. I mean, there's been 10,000 sightings of this thing over 1,500 years. How do you know that? Summer, a distinguished team of filmmakers and scientists set out on an extraordinary expedition. Show me one piece of evidence that proves this thing does not exist. They're saying, show us the evidence. I'm saying, show us the non-evidence. Their mission <laughs> to uncover the legendary... That's not how that works, buddy. <laughs> 
A lot of strange things happened on the boat, and I just knew that there was something seriously wrong. Shoot it with a nine millimeter. Absolute pandelirium on this loch, so it's been very difficult to get any real information out of them as to the causes of this tragedy. Okay. Okay, so why the hell did I save what is arguably the silliest of these movies that we've talked about for last? Well, it's not just my love of Werner Herzog movies and documentaries, though admittedly that may or may not have had some impact. Uh, the actual reason here is that the movie knows precisely what it's doing. While looking up some minor details about this movie on Wikipedia, I found this comment, and I think it's just incredibly funny. Quote, The entire movie is actually a mockumentary film within a film within a film. It's so close, in my opinion, to what Lake Mungo is doing, but it has this extra couple layers of abstraction, mediation, and just sheer absurdity. It's honestly confusing in a couple spaces, intentionally so. Uh, Zach Penn and Herzog are clearly having a great time beating you over the head with how silly this all is. This movie has one of my absolute favorite film moments in it of all time. It's a sequence in this movie I can't watch without laughing. Uh, one of the cameras in the movie is focused on a cryptozoologist that Zach Penn brought onto the film. And as the interview goes on, the cryptozoologist kind of clumsily explains his esoteric method of doing laundry. Yeah, you heard that right. Esoteric laundry method. Just follow me here, okay? The camera lingers on the guy for just a little too long, hanging on him in this weak and weird silence. It's something that Herzog does with his subjects in many of his nonfiction films. So I started to wonder in that moment, was that Herzog's direction? Well, no, it, it shouldn't be, but it looks like his work, you know? And then there's the sequence where things are breaking down between the cast members. Herzog turns to a documentary uh, cameraman that he's brought along since he wanted to make a film about making a film with Zach Penn. I know that's silly. <laughs> so, uh, Joe, you're following along? Good. <laughs> so This film is absurd, and yeah. I hope everybody takes some time to go see it, but continue. Yeah. I don't want to cut you off here. So Herzog turns to that camera with this silly little grin on his face, and he says, now tell me who is real and who is not. Do it in the voice. Now tell me who is real and who is not. And it's this sly little thing, but it's absolutely re revealing about the conceit of this movie, you know? And rather, like I'd pointed out, you can sort of lose sight of who's doing what in the movie and what the movie's about. Uh, it's so brilliant. Uh, Joe, you had also said you had a favorite like kind of mockumentary horror movie. What, what was the one you wanted to bring up? The Mandalorian. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've already made that joke tonight. I want to see the baby. Bring me the child. No. <laughs> For those of us that are doing the Herzog impression tonight, um, mockumentaries are fun. And 
I wanted to bring it up on this episode. I think I've mentioned it before, but what better place? If you haven't seen it, you need to give it a shot. Because behind the mask, the rise of Leslie Vernon. I think it's a brilliant mockumentary film because it does the same thing that Incident at Loch Ness does. It tells you exactly what it is, and then it just throws it away at the end of the film. This is about a serial killer who's preparing to reveal himself, and it talks about his process and how he plans and accomplishes his killings. And you have a Blair Witch-style crew following him around as he throws it all out on the table. And that's as much as I can tell you without taking away the joy that is this film. But I am going to spoil one scene where they're talking about how in the scary movies, the killer's always right behind the girl. And it doesn't matter how far you run or how fast you get there. He's always going to be there behind you. They immediately cut to Leslie doing cardio. (laughs) And his exact words are, you have no idea how much cardio I have to do. It's not about just being able to get there. It's about being able to look like you're not winded. And I was in at that moment. This film is not well reviewed, but I think it's underappreciated. If you love Incident at Loch Ness for the absurdity and how it just keeps turning left, this is a film that should be on your watch list. It might not be your favorite, but it definitely stands out as okay. No matter how much pain I had to go through, it's worth it. You know, and... This is not like the first time that conceit has happened in a movie, though it, it's maybe the most modern and the most pointed. Uh, there's another one. Oh, it's 1990s Belgian flick called Man Bites Dog. And it's kind of the same premise is there's this uh, hitman serial killer kind of character and a, a camera crew starts following him and kind of starts getting in on the action a little bit. It's a very very dark movie and i saw it maybe a little i think i saw it when i was 14 or 15 i saw it maybe a little too young to get it and re-watching it as an adult is a real treat because you kind of see uh a lot of the 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 origins of how mockumentary horror and a movie like behind the mask ends up happening it's a, a really neat thing and i I don't know. I, I think this is one of those things that just doesn't get talked about enough. So either Incident at Loch Ness or uh, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Go check them out. We've been talking a lot about mockumentary horror movies, and I hope that I've made the connection between this and found footage horror more clearly. To me, it's so obvious, but I really don't see too many people getting onto this point It's frustrating, honestly, but it makes me think a lot about reality TV, quote unquote, reality TV. We all know, or I think we all know, that reality TV isn't actually real. I mean, first of all, it's a barely concealed fact that reality TV shows are as scripted or as contrived as more, quote unquote, conventional programs. And this is nothing of what I had been talking about earlier. TV and movies ultimately have at least one level of mediation between the audience and the subject matter, and ultimately it falls upon the audience to draw the conclusions about real and fake as it relates to the media. But, you know, we all know how hard that can be, right? 
we are not encouraged too strongly to act as good interpreters of media. We've talked at length about how one goal of the Fright Lab is to get people to think more critically about media, and movies like Lake Mungo, or for that matter, Nanook of the North, constrain our abilities to do that in a really big way. You know, the objective universe, the, the world that we all inhabit, is messy enough. And most of us don't have the scientific ability, much less the interpersonal skills, to apprehend all of its details. And that's not a failing, it's just being human. So I have to acknowledge that mockumentaries are potentially the most dangerous of the subtypes of horror cinema verite. But on our next episode, we're going to be talking about a sub-variety of horror cinema verite that I think most of us can accurately read and hopefully have a good time watching. So with all of that said, my dear audience, what do you think? Are horror mockumentaries as big of a deal as I think they are? How do you interpret these ideas about abstraction in terms of media? Am I, as always, overthinking all of this? Let us know. Email us, thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com. We can be found on the Letterbox app at FrightLabPod. And we are, of course, on Twitter for some godforsaken reason at Fright underscore lab underscore pod. Mr. Wren, would you let our intrepid documentarians, I mean, our intrepid fans, know where they can find more about your podcasts? If you enjoy heavy metal music and all the heavy metal concepts, whether it be hardcore, doom and gloom, even hard rock sometimes, you need to check out all the podcasts at DiscussMetal.com. We talk about your favorite bands, my favorite bands. We talk about heavy metal subjects. If you like nerdy topics, check out the Nerf Herder Council. Those guys are talking about everything. And I do mean everything. Mostly Star Wars, but everything <laughs> geeky and nerdy. I've been hanging out with AJ. We're talking about Star Trek. Sometimes we imbibe while we watch along, so keep your eyes on that. What I want you to do right now is take out your phone, take out your laptop, take out your tablet device, whatever you've got, wherever you are listening to the Fright Lab. If this is your first episode or if you've been here since the beginning, we appreciate you and I want to hear from you. We want to hear from you. Give us a thumbs up. Give us a five-star review. Tell us what you think. You heard Lucas say it earlier, the Fright Lab podcast at gmail.com. Lucas, tell everyone how much we love and appreciate independent media. You know, when you have spent many hours on a Sunday recording, ruining your voice, spending time talking about subjects that very few people care about. Uh, <laughs> not our fans. Our fans are incredibly too smart, too good-looking, too charming to fall into such a trap. But when you spend time doing independent media for any length, you determine that this is a hard thing to do because there's such a big engine of mainstream media that is going to bowl over quieter, smaller voices, which is why we as independent artists have to stick together and have to rely on each other to make a scene and make noise for ourselves. So if you are creating horror-adjacent music, be that some next-level dark ambient, be that uh, horror punk or horror-influenced metal or horror-influenced hip-hop, great. If you're making a horror podcast similar or different to what we're doing, we want to hear about it. Email us at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter. Let us know what you're up to because we want to signal boost every other independent artist. The Fright Lab is written and researched by me, Lucas Yoakum, and is co-hosted and produced by Joseph Wren. We thank you all for tuning in, and we appreciate every single one of you. 
With that, good night, and we will talk again soon. Well done, sir. I'm happy. I'm actually very happy with that. Um, I, I'm happy to finally get someone else to watch Incident at Loch Ness because that movie's such a fucking ridiculous thing. It's been a long time, but I remember that <laughs> from a few years ago. Uh, one of my favorite moments in that movie, honestly, at one point, uh, Zach Penn comes out with uh, a flare gun and the camera's like, oh yeah? How do you like this, Werner? How does it feel to be on the other end of it? And it cuts to Werner Herzog in the studio going like, yeah, that, he's referencing the thing that I allegedly did. Uh, the story goes that I once held a gun on Klaus Kinski to make him finish the scene. It's an urban myth that never happened. And then it cuts back to the action and he goes, Zach, what are you doing? And by the way, that's not even a real gun. That's a flare gun. It's also not even loaded. <laughs> and Zach Penn goes, oh, oh, you're right, isn't it? <laughs> It's such a bullshit, stupid moment, but it's so much fun. It's very absurd. But even in the beginning of the film, when Herzog is like talking to his documentarian yeah. about how he knows it's bullshit, but now he has to walk over and in scene say on tape that like this is bullshit. Like there's no better <laughs> visual for it. He's literally project managing his own director. And it's it's hilarious and absurd. Let's be honest, because it's Herzog. Oh, shit. Yeah. I mean, if you had given that to any other director, I don't think it would have worked. I think Herzog is such a, a big name and he's so universally loved by so many people that if you gave it to, I don't know. Uh, give it to James Cameron. See what happens. Oh, fuck. Or Ron Howard. Or, I mean, you know, and not to say anything bad about those two guys. I like their movies just fine. But. Herzog is such a fucking weirdo <laughs> that I think it works. And any other director, I just don't think it would have worked out.